If you're staying in here and have a Bible, turn to the book of James. We're going to be uh, in James 1 today. If you want to grab one, there's some back there. If you have a phone Bible, I think that's awesome. Um, I also want you to grab out, if you're a writer, uh, grab out a piece of paper and a pen. If you want to even grab a connection card in the back of the chair and write this down, you can. Uh, if you're a, not a writing person, if you are a phone person, I want to ask you one question and either writing it or typing it into your phone, I want you to just put down the answer really quickly. I want you to write down something that you are currently going through. I don't need an essay. One word, two words, whatever you want. Something you are currently going through that you wished you were not going through. Something you are currently going through that you wish you were not going through. A few of you look confused. I don't know if that's a confusion of like, oh, there's too many to list. Or if that's the confusion of your life is so good you don't know. Some of you laughed out loud because I know you and you're going through enough that you could write a paragraph on this. And so write down something that you're currently going through that you wished you were in, or you can type it in your phone. You don't have to share it. I don't want to know it. You're not going to have like a share circle at the end where you have to tell it. Just it'll make this a little bit more tangible today, I think. I, I think about a time in my life when I think I was uh, Drew's age, actually, when this happened. If, if I would have been asked this question when I was exactly Drew's age, I know exactly what I would have said. Uh, 19 years ago, I was going through a crazy situation. It was about this time of year. I was living with this very nice older couple, and they told me that they had a new tenant that their grandson was going to be moving into the home, the space in their house that I had been renting. And so this was like on a Thursday afternoon, and they said, by the way, you have a couple of weeks, and then you will not be living here anymore. Now, normally that wouldn't have upset me so much, except at the exact same time, I was in between ministry jobs. And so here I was like not in full-time ministry and about to not have a home. And I had that day before met with a pastor at a church where I had my resume in. And I was really overqualified for this particular ministry role. And so I met with this pastor and I never will forget sitting across his desk. He looked at me and he goes, JD, you are really overqualified for this particular role, but something in me, I feel like God is telling me that I'm not supposed to hire you. That was devastating. So that was on Wednesday. You don't get this job. Thursday, you're moving out in two or three weeks. And then that night, because I don't know how many of you roll through stress really well. I'm not one of those. A couple of you, praise the Lord for you. Uh, may your tribe increase in our church. Um, I don't. So that night, that Thursday night, I started, I was sleepwalking. Whenever I get really anxious and crazy, I start sleepwalking. So on that night, I'm sleepwalking, and I tripped, and I fell and hit the nightstand of my bed. And so that Friday morning, I wake up. A Wednesday, I don't get a job. Thursday, I find out I'm going to be without a home. Friday, I wake up, and I've got this huge black eye. And uh, I remember thinking, it made me think of that line in Dumb and Dumber. Do you guys remember the movie Dumb and Dumber where they're deciding to go to Aspen and they're like, we got no jobs, we got no booze, our pets' heads are falling off. That was literally what I felt like in that moment. I had no job, I was going to have no home, I had a black eye, and, uh, and I'll tell you the truth, like, I wished in that moment, but I could have believed it. God got me through. Like, it was an interesting three months. Right after that, this very amazing couple invited me to come live in their home until God provided me with another ministry job. Within two months, I was working for a church where I would spend the next six years of my life. It was an amazing ministry role I got to be part of. And, uh, and I learned, one, I've never been homeless. Not that there's anything wrong. Like, 
if that happens, if that's someone's journey, like there's nothing wrong with that. I, God took care of me in that moment. I thought I would be homeless in Madison County, Georgia, population 20,000, where there are more chickens than there are humans. But I was not homeless. God took care of me. I have never starved. I know that that's hard to believe as you look at me today, but I've never, I haven't missed a whole lot of meals, as you can tell. I didn't miss a whole lot during that period. I was fine. And I've, I never went blind. Like, uh, you know, I hit the corner of that nightstand. I mean, it cut my eye right here. It was nice and yellow and black for a couple of weeks. I didn't go blind. I still got decent sight in both eyes. And uh, every trial that I've ever gone through, God had a purpose for. So I don't know what you wrote down, like what you're going through that you wish you weren't. But I promise you that God has a purpose for every one of them, whatever you're going through. Some of you are going through some tremendous stuff. Some of you, it's just tremendously inconvenient. But whatever you're going through, God really does have a purpose for it. So we're in the middle of a series. We're in week two of a series called Untended Fires. It comes from uh, a line in a book by Gail McDonald where she says, Untended fires uh, will burn out and soon become a pile of ashes. And uh, it's such a great line. And what she was saying when she was writing this book is that there's things in your life that you have to stoke up. There's things in your life that if you don't stoke them up regularly, they will burn out. But the other byproduct of that is there's also things in our lives that we need to let burn out. There's some things that are a fire in our life right now that we just kind of need to do this right here on and let them burn out. And so as we read through James, we're trying to read through it with a lens of like, okay, what's a fire in my life that I need to stoke up? What's something that God wants me to stoke up? And then what are some other things that we see in the book of James that I need to let burn down and go out? And so today we're going to be reading in verse 2 through 8. I'm in 12 through 18. I'm going to tell you about James because this may get confusing. Over the course of 10 weeks, we will read every verse in the book of James. However, we will not always read them in order. We're going to skip a few because James was actually written almost akin to the Old Testament book of Proverbs in that it's going to give wisdom for Christians living in the Roman Empire who have been scattered because of persecution And so he's writing almost something like Proverbs. So there are going to be themes. There's about eight major themes in the book of James. And so we're going to stick more to the themes than we will to going verse by verse. So we'll get all the verses, but today will be the first Sunday that we kind of begin to go out of order. We're trying to organize this series by the theme. So here we go. Uh, James 1, we're going to start in verse 2, and uh, and we're going to um, read a few verses, skip, and I'll make it clear. All right, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. And let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And we're going to skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Three more verses. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And let me just say, this next verse is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. If you write in your Bible, if you underline or if you highlight on your phone or iPad, I can't recommend enough that you highlight this. It's so powerful, so beautiful. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, so the imperative, the first thing that James does after he introduced, remember two weeks ago, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, we said that James is actually Jesus' half-brother, and he's not the first leader of the church of Jerusalem. The first leader was James, the, the, ha- the brother of John. This is a second James who, after the first James was killed, the second James, James's, uh, Jesus' half-brother, becomes the leader of the church. And in the, right before all that, uh, Stephen, one of the early leaders in the church, was murdered. He was martyred, and the Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And they didn't scatter all to one city. They weren't like, oh, let's get out of here and get over to Antioch, or let's get to Athens, or let's get to Alexandria. They scattered to various cities. They were new believers. Uh, they, most of them once were Jewish by faith, and definitely most of them are still Jewish by culture. But now they've moved to different cities in the Roman Empire, and as followers of Christ, they're actually on a most wanted list in the city of Jerusalem. And so here, they find themselves away from their community, away from their home, and James is writing, and he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, in other words, to the people of God scattered throughout the Roman Empire, greetings. And then the first thing he says, and it's imperative it's not a suggestion, it's an imperative command. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I can tend to think of a trial for me as like my air conditioner went out for the like a couple of days, you know, like, oh man, it's such a trial. Or the other day we were going on vacation and we were going to leave at 5 a.m. And we go and we're putting, me and Noah are putting stuff in the car and we're ready to go, we're going to hit the road. And I look and I go, that tire is flat. And so then I'm going to like try to take the, you know, I was like, I can't put a donut on this thing and drive it to Ohio. Like I've got to wait until a tire place opens. And like this for me is about as deep as my trials get. Like the guy at the tire place getting a little snarky with me when I'm trying to go on vacation. Like, but this is not who James is writing to. This is not the situation when he says, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Here is their situation. Uh, his audience is new Christians, mostly of Jewish descent, in various Roman Empire cities, which are very pagan. These cities would be so anti-Jewish religion, anti-Christian, that they would literally, at Paul, when Paul goes into the city of Athens, the Greek says that Paul almost threw up his stomach, was so turned with how pagan the city of Athens was. I mean, these are really different cities than these people's hometown. They're grieved by the loss of 
James, the brother of John. They're threatened. Uh, They've gone from being nobodies to being on every most wanted list in any post office in the Roman Empire, uh, if that were a thing. They had to make a quick move. How many of you, when you go to move to a new place, like to do it low and slow, like make sure we got everything, clean it all up, yep, get it all? That was not their situation. It was like a midnight escape, essentially. They're in new cities, new homes, no churches, new cultures, new religions around them full of new idols and idolatries. They're poor. They've lost their resources. Um, They've parted from their not yet Christian family. Some of you are newer followers of Christ and you love living near your community that you've grown up in because you've told me, oh, I want to be able to share my faith. I want to see my grandparents come to know Christ or my parents or my cousin or my brother. They feel these same longings and yet they've been forced out of their city to a new place away from their not yet Christ following family. They are unwanted refugees They are alienated, isolated, marginalized, unpopular, shunned, uh, and even cheered against. When these people moved to these cities, there was literally a kind of conspiracy of don't buy their stuff, don't support their businesses, leave them alone, and maybe they will go away. It's essentially the American equivalent of people in America who are anti-illegal immigration to the point that We've lost our sights on a policy, and now we just don't love people because they're not from here. That's what these Christians are experiencing. And James says, count it all joy. It makes my flat tire feel a little corny, right? The hangnail, that lost air conditioner, the, you know, getting a stain on my favorite shirt kind of stuff. He says, count it all joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. Now, a trial, I want us to differentiate because James does between a trial and a temptation. Let me give you a working definition for a trial really quickly. A trial is a positive test intended to make your faith genuine. A positive test intended to make your faith genuine. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but some of you will glance back at your trial, your thing you're going through, and go, you're going to tell me that's positive? You're going to tell me that's a positive thing? Come on. Like, be real, dude. That's not positive. Sometimes it's perspective. And sometimes from the Lord's perspective, it is a positive thing because it's sent in, allowed into our lives to make our faith more genuine if we let it. So in 3 and 4, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, if it runs its course, will produce maturity. That word steadfastness, I, I know some of you may use different translations. The way I memorized this as a kid was in the NIV. I think the NIV says uh, perseverance. I don't know if some of you have a different uh, translation, but when it says steadfastness, it means toughness. Let the trial have its way so it can produce toughness, perseverance, staying power, fortitude. Do you know some people who, do you, how many of you know people who are always going to be just a little tougher than the challenge that's before them? James is saying, when you face a trial, let it produce that fortitude, that staying power. Full steadfastness then produces perfection, he says. Now, I'm not perfect, I don't know if any of you live under the delusion that you're perfect. I know most of you pretty well enough to know that you don't believe you're perfect. So 
what God is not calling us to is perfection. There's only been one person in human history ever who is morally perfect. That was Jesus. And he lived in moral perfection because we don't. And then he sacrificed himself and exchanged his moral perfection for our sinfulness so we can have relationship with God. So when James, Jesus' half-brother, says the trial and the steadfast will make you perfect, he doesn't mean that we won't sin anymore. He means, and this is a word, a Greek word that means like it will make you ripe. We got some peaches the other day that are not ripe. As a person from Georgia, there's nothing grosser than a hard peach. Like, nothing grosser than a hard peach. Like, and it was, it looked like a good peach. It really did. And I picked it up, and Nat goes, don't eat that. It's like a rock. And I picked it up, and I, immediately, as soon as she said, I was squeezing it, because that's what you do with a peach. And it was like a rock. It felt like it was, and I just threw it right back in the basket. I was like, you can just throw that right in the trash can. It is not edible. James says that trials will produce steadfastness. And steadfastness doesn't produce moral perfection. It produces a ripe sweetness. It's God getting us to where we are just where we need to be. And we are complete and lacking nothing. Then he goes on in verses 5 through 8. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom in the middle of a trial, whatever your thing is on your paper, I promise you one thing that you are going to need and I need in a trial is wisdom, the ability to see a situation, life, faith, yourself, others, your job, your neighbors from God's perspective. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously. There's like eight things I pray for almost every day. Wisdom, discernment, favor, blessing, favor on our church, favor on me, favor on our family, blessing, that my boys will grow up to marry Christian women and then lead lives of godly influence in this world. Um, I ask that God would give me opportunities to share the gospel with people. I ask that God would make himself very near to me. At the top of that list, almost every day, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to live and to see things like you do. James says, if you lack wisdom ask for it, and God will give it. It's a promise. I don't know what you pray for. I'm not sure. I used to pray really selfish things. Now my religious guilt complex doesn't let me pray really selfish things. I just pray sort of selfish things most of the time, right? It is a good thing to pray for because it's one of the few things in the Bible where it says, if you ask for it, God will give it. If you lean into God, God, give me wisdom, he will give it. And he says, what's the alternative to asking for wisdom? He says, the one who asks, he says, there's some people who ask and ask with a mixed heart. They ask with doubt. In other words, they're like, God, give me wisdom. But also I'm going to lean into like worldly wisdom and I'm just going to do my thing. And I'm going to have one foot over here in your kingdom, God, loving you and serving you and doing it your way. And we have another foot over here that's trying to do it my way or the world's way or somebody else's way. And he says, that person, that person is a doubter, a double-minded person, a two-faced person. Do you remember, uh, wasn't there a character in the Batman movies named Two-Face? And it was like, you would look at him this way. I think it was Tommy Lee Jones in one of the old movies, if I remember right. You would look at him this way and he looked great. And you would look at him this way and he would be like this evil villain, right? James says, the person who asks and lives in doubt lives in doubt. It's like a two-faced, double-minded, 
all over the place, unstable, can't receive anything from God. I think we have a slide up of the Boston, uh, a slide of the Boston Harbor cruises. We took one of those whale watching tours one time. Have any of you ever done this? It's great. The waters on our day were basically the opposite of this. Like, they were the complete opposite of this. It was so, uh, it was so uh, choppy that day. Thank you. Couldn't think of the word. It was so choppy. We got up to the top deck. God and his sovereignty, the Lord of the universe, loving me and knowing what's best for me, allowed me to have a moment of wisdom where we as a family went up to the top deck. Not sure we did, why we did that. But we went to the top deck and uh, we, had a, we were watching the horizon the whole time. And the boys were like, are we almost there? And not quite. We're watching the horizon. Even though the waves are rocking, we've got a higher vantage point so we can look out a little bit farther and we can see where we're going. We were uncomfortable. Like there were moments where I was uncomfortable, but we were okay. About 75% of the way through a trip, Owen says, dad, I gotta use the bathroom. On these, you know, if you've ever used the bathroom on these things, you have to go down two decks to go use the restroom. The lower, it was like descending into hell. It was like the descent into hell. Like you could just, you could feel it. You knew this is not going to be good. Like, and you just could hear moaning and you just see vomit. And it just, the thing, it was rocking up where we were. It was rocking down on that bottom deck. I mean, literally, there's a moment, uh, there's vomit on the rail going down. I was like, oh, and don't touch the rail. And like, we're just like, I feel like we're stepping over people on the verge of death. Like, they are just down there dying. The boat is rocking. It was, it was crazy. Uh, it was terrible. And I thought... Um, What a different experience than we're having. (laughs) Here's these people. They're down at the level of the situation. The boat is rocking. They can't see where they're going. They're dying down here. Just praying that this thing will end. Versus, and it wasn't great where we were, but we were watching the horizon. We were watching the destination. We were seeing where we were going. And we had a higher vantage point. The one who doubts who asked in doubt, who literally is trusting God and trusting the things of the world is like the person, James would say, on the bottom deck of that boat. If no vantage point, no perspective, and the trial will make them sick and eat them alive. When we get up to God's perspective, when we ask in faith, God, help me have wisdom. Help me see this like you see it. He will do it, James says. God promises he will do it. And so skipping down to verse 12, it's that word steadfast again. Blessed is the person, the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who loved him. Steadfastness here is that we'll be blessed. Some of you have been through trials in the last year or two. The scripture says, when you get through it, you will be blessed. You will be joyful and happy and you will have victory. When it says the crown of life, that's not a king's crown. That's an Olympics crown. How many of you are Olympics nerds? Any of you love the Olympics? Yeah, it's great. I, I don't care a ton for them, but they're all right. I mean, I find myself watching. I saw the American men lost a basketball game last night to Nigeria, which is like amazing to me that the greatest basketball players in the world lost to Nigeria in a basketball game. Sorry. Um, the, the person who withstands the trial doesn't just get happiness and a better perspective. 
the scriptures say they get the crown of life. It's the victor's crown that an Olympic, an ancient Olympic athlete would get when they won a race. And it doesn't say we get it in heaven. We get it right now. The one who stands the trial and goes through it experiences happiness, blessing, and a crown of life. Every victory, every new opponent, you will have more skill for the next trial. There's a video game I played as a kid. I'm about to show my age a little bit. I think we have a slide for it. Will you go to the next one for me? There's a game called Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Did any of you ever play Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? A couple of you. It was a great game. Uh, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. You had to start with Glass Joe. I remember Glass Joe distinctly because I beat him like four times. And, uh, and then I think I beat Von Kaiser. I think that was the next one. It was at Don Flamenco. I can't remember which one was next. Every time you beat an opponent in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, you went to the next opponent who had more skill than the previous opponent. And then there actually were a, was a cheat code on Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I don't know if any of you ever used this. I came to this late. And if you, if you got the cheat code, it would take you all the way to Bald Bull, who then, if you, or to Soda Popinski, who if you beat Soda Popinski, then you got to fight Mike Tyson. And this was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Trials are similar. Every time you walk through one, get the crown of life, get the happiness and blessing The next one is going to test you a little more because it's meant to grow your faith. And so trials will come at us. Now, James gives this little parenthesis almost where he says, differentiate between trials and temptation. A trial is a positive test. A trial is a positive test to make our faith genuine. A temptation is, and this comes from a guy named Dr. Michael Milton, a a temptation is an intentional enticement of a person by some bait to disobey God or distrust God's word. A temptation is different. A trial is something you're to go through. A temptation is an an enticement. It's a distortion of God's best and the defiance of God's word. And James says, God can't be tempted. And God doesn't tempt anyone. So if it's late at night and you are feeling tempted to sin and your sin way of choice, know that God did not sin that. If you're on a date and you're tempted to go some dumb place that you're like, why would I even go there? Or if you're at work or you're filling out your taxes and you're tempted to cheat just a little bit, nobody will know. That temptation is not from God. God allows trials to grow our faith. Temptations are not from the Lord. In fact, in verse 14, it says uh, that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There have been times in my life where I blame stuff on the devil. The devil made me do that. The devil made me do it. James says, it's not even the devil. Sometimes we give the devil way too much credit. James says, when we sin, when we're tempted, we're being tempted, we're being lured and enticed away by our own desires. There's times in my life, even now at 43 years old, where I blame things on the devil that are really just my own spiritual immaturity. I'll say, man, this is real spiritual warfare attacking my emotions. No. It's that there's part of my feelings and emotions, but I've not fully surrendered to God and his word sometimes. And I've just blamed it on the devil and temptation and spiritual warfare when really God's just calling me to grow and mature in my faith. We've got to be careful not to blame, give, to give the devil more credit than he deserves when sometimes for me it's my immaturity, my fear, my selfishness, my impatience. 
James says, keep your desires surrendered. Walk, we need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit in us. Because temptation, if we let temptation have its way, it then becomes a desire of at least to sin. And if we let sin have its way, it leads to death. It leads to death. Most temptation in my life, from the moment that I was a teenager up until the place where I am now, even to one day when I'm really old, I hope, God willing. Like, the, the grid doesn't change. Temptation, unchecked, becomes sin. Sin, unchecked, leads to death. And, and God doesn't be like, oh, well, it's Juliana, or oh, it's, it's Carson, or oh, it's Jenny. They get a pass because I know they really love me. Temptation, unchecked, leads to sin. Sin, unchecked, leads to death. It's the same for all of us. It's the same for every one of us. And then that's why I love 16, 17, and 18. In light of all of that, every good and perfect gift, every good gift. How many of you, when I say, think of a good gift God has given you in your life, how many of you can immediately think of someone, something, or somebody? Every perfect gift. How many things in your life do you look and go, oh, it's just so good, it's almost perfect. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow. Grace means God won't leave us. God's character means that God doesn't change. Grace means that God will never leave us. And I love that. I love what we were saying earlier. God's character, the theological word, his, his immutability. God's immutability means that he will never change. God will never, ever, ever change. He will never change. God will never leave you. He will never break a promise. He will never desert his character. He will never, you'll never see God squared this moment and then shadow in this moment. You'll see the shadow of his shoulder because he pivoted. God will never, ever, ever, ever change. He's steady. Every good and perfect gift comes from him and he doesn't change. So let me give you really quickly a few applications. I'm going to move through this and then we'll be done. Number one, Trials happen for us, not to us. Let me say it again, because you might think, oh, that's not a big deal. It's not a really big deal, J.D. What are you talking about? What's the difference? It's a big deal. Trials happen for us, not to us. To think that a trial happens to you is to be a victim of your trial. Oh, man, this is happening to me. Ugh. Why is God letting this happen to me? Why is God so mean letting this happen to me? No, God's not letting this happen to you. God is letting this happen for you. Whatever's on your paper is not something that's happening to you. It is something that is happening for you. We are not victims. The Bible says we are overcomers, more than conquerors. When those trials have their way with us, they become good and perfect gifts that our Lord allows Your trials aren't happening to you. They're happening for you because they're presents from God to allow you to know him and become more like him. Number two, when you are tempted to ask, why me? Make a list of what you know to be true of God, of this situation, and of who you are in Christ. When you are tempted to be like, God, why me? Like, look at my journal. Look at my Facebook feed. Look at my Insta story. God, this is miserable. Look at my bank account. Look at my family. Look, at, I had to go to this Christmas dinner. Look at these people, God. 
When you're tempted to feel like that, instead of saying, why me? In that moment, just grab out a notebook and start listing everything you know to be true of God, of this situation, and of who you are in Christ. It's not happening to you. It's happening for you. And none of those things have changed. Who he says he is and what he will do. Ask God in those moments for wisdom. God, help me see this thing, this sickness, this brokenness, this trial, this joblessness, this whatever it may be. Help me see this from your perspective. When trials assault your feelings, causing anxiety or loneliness or despair or anger, go to what you know. Your feelings are liars. Every time you guys are like, JD, I'm really feeling, I would just want to grab like that, you know the little buzzer in Taboo? Remember that? Meh. When you're like, JD, I'm just really feeling, JD, but you understand, I'm feeling, meh. your feelings will lie to you. Go to what you know. Confront what you feel with what you know to be true of God, of the situation, and of who you are in Christ. Number three, trials stink. How many of you like, have never said amen in church, but you could almost say amen out loud to that? Trials stink. Like We're not trying to like, be Buddhist and just try to be like, well, this is to kill your feelings, and this is not a real trial. This is just perception of a thing. No, trials are real, and they are miserable. They're sometimes not fun, but trials are part of life. They're part of life, and Christians are not exempt. James is writing to only believers, and he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, not if, when you face trials of various kinds. The truth is you're either coming out of a trial or in the middle of a trial or about to go into a trial because they're just part of life. And, and some of you are in all three. You just came out of one, you're in the middle of a new one, and you know another one's coming. It's just part of life. I wish that it didn't work that way, but God in his sovereignty has allowed it to be that way. Christians are exempt, but trials, though they stink, they are not punishments. Your trials are not punishments. They're actually... And this is going to be potentially the most controversial thing I'm going to say today. And if you want to talk for a moment after church, I'm good with it. They're actually gifts from God. Good gifts and perfect gifts from the Father of the heavenly lights with whom there is no shadow of turning or variation. Now, J.D., how can you say they're gifts? Because they're not intended to make you sin. They're intended to allow you to grow. And while that really tough trial may not be something that God is causing, per se, I struggle with that theologically. I'm not there. It is something that God and his love is allowing. I am there theologically. If you're going through a trial today and you're a child of God, you are part of God's family, you've trusted Christ, I do believe that God has allowed that thing into your life. It is a gift. It is a gift. Number four, trials do not produce. This is the craziest thing. Do you ever read the Bible and you're like, dang, I never saw that before. Has that ever happened to you? God got me. 
on this one about a month ago. The Lord really like did a ninja chop on me. Uh, trials do not produce maturity. Trials don't produce maturity. Trials give opportunity for steadfastness. And steadfastness produces maturity. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trial will not perfect you. The leaning in and persevering through the trial is the thing that grows and matures and perfects you. Don't miss the middle step. In fact, if we have a name for today's sermon, it is the middle step. Steadfastness in trials. Steadfastness, this scripture says, will produce seven things. If you want to write them down, I think we've got them up here. One, they will produce joy. Your trial will produce joy. Two, they will produce maturity. The godliest, most steady, most ripe Christians I've ever met were some of the ones who also had some of the most awful things happen to them. It grew them. It matured them. Number three, they will produce wisdom. They will produce the opportunity to you, for you to ask God for wisdom, and God will give wisdom if we ask in faith. They will produce stability. Trials will make you steadier. Nick often says to our boys, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, Right? Slow in a trial is steadiness. And steadiness produces speed as we walk with God and growth. They, they give us stability. Number five, they produce influence. The victor's crown is not in heaven. The victor's crown is now. You've, you're steadfast in a trial. You go through it. You get a crown of victory. You get a story. You get a testimony of what God did when he brought you through it. Six, it will give you victory. God will give you victory. And in 18, or from verse 18, the last one, trials will, in steadfastness, will, will be an opportunity for grace. For God giving you and I something we don't deserve. It's not the cause of grace, but as we endure and we overcome, we do so by grace. In other words, if Saul's going through a trial right now, and he, in faith, leans in, asks God for wisdom, walks through it. God doesn't go, hey, so good job. You really nailed that. Now, I'm going to love you a little more than I loved you a month ago before you were going through that. No, what, it, what happens is when we begin to walk into a trial, it is God's grace that goes with us every step. It's not performance-based. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Everything we need for a trial in life is given to us freely because of Christ. He doesn't withhold a single thing from us. It's not our performance. It's God's goodness. Number five, tell yourself in a trial, this will not last forever. This will not last forever. One of the best phrases in the entire Bible, and it came to pass. And it came to pass. You might need to memorize it. And it came to pass. Jesus in this traffic jam, it will come to pass. If it came to pass for Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the disciples and Moses and Abraham and David and Elijah and Esther and Ruth, it will come to pass for me as well. And it came to pass. It will not last forever. It has a definite end date and God knows it, it has a definite purpose. God knows it. And then finally, number six, as it regards untended fires. You, we need to burn down double-mindedness. Just let double-mindedness burn out. This idea of it like, I'm going to be sort of in with Christ. I'm going to be sort of in with whatever I want to be in with. We've got to let that fire burn 
out and then, and, and I would call that ungospeled thinking. Ungospeled thinking. We've got to develop a gospel lens to see the world through, including our trials. We've got to burn down our, un, let our ungospeled thinking burn out. This is so hard for me. I'll be honest, like, I wish I'd arrived on this. There's times where I get angry at the least little things. The Lord convicted me this week of something, by the way. The Lord reminded me that I am to count it all joy, whatever I'm going through. And there's moments where I let my circumstances rob me of my joy. That is ungospeled thinking. And we've got to let that burn out. And I've got to count all things joy. And so the thing that we stoke up is steadfastness. One more rep. One more rep, one more push, one more go through. Hang in there one more day. Deal with this interaction one more time. Stoke up steadfastness because steadfastness, not the trial, will be the thing that produces maturity. I read a quote this week. A true pearl is simply a victory over irritation. A true pearl is simply a victory over irritation. God is producing pearls in you and I. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saw we were pearls when we were really just a piece of sand. And he laid down his life to make us so. And so what he has declared us to be, he has already declared us pearls. He is allowing irritation to make us. And that is the good news of the gospel. You are a pearl, and yet your trials and your steadfastness are making you a pearl but it's not you and I. It's who Jesus made us and is making us and will continue to make us. Let me pray.